You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 757 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you live on a Wednesday evening, and today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar, the best tasting bar in the business. And remember to use the promo code Locked On to get ten dollars off on your first box of Built Bars. Joining me tonight for, uh, I guess, the conclusion of our five-part series. I have no idea what we'll do after this, but Ben Ladner is here. Hello, Ben. Hello. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. It's my pleasure, and uh, I kid because I'm sure I will have an idea that I would like to have you come back on the podcast to discuss. This is it, not, not only have to be player review series when you come on the show, but these have been kind of a hit. I think people like these, and it's been I try to space them out a little bit because of the never-ending uh, off-season or whatever we are in at the moment in time. But at some point, we had to do all five, and uh, today is the fifth. If you missed the first four or anything else. Uh, on the podcast, please subscribe. But uh, basically what Ben and I are doing is going through all of the guys on the Hawks roster to end the season sort of positionally. We did two parts on wings, two parts on the bigs, and now today's podcast will be on the point guards. This is probably the easiest in terms of positional uh, description. There are three point guards. There are three players we'll discuss. They are Brandon Goodwin, Jeff Teague, and Trey Young. Obviously, point guard is the spot that I feel like I talk about the least right now which is probably true in some respects for everyone talking about the Hawks, but because there is some certainty, obviously, Troy Young is the best player on the team in the face of the franchise, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you feel that way, Ben, just before we start diving in on the, on the players? I, I feel like, I mean, backup point guard is going to get some discussion, and, and I think we'll talk about that plenty on this show, but in general, like with my draft stuff, it's like I kind of ignore point guard right now. Yeah, it feels like they're sort of set at the bookends of the roster right now, which is kind of a strange thing to say given the state of the center rotation this time a year ago, but they, they <laughs> or this, kind or of this flipped, time three months ago, <laughs> Yeah, they kind of flipped that position into a strength in a, like was 24 hours, basically trading for Deadman and Capella on back-to-back days. So yeah, I mean, obviously a tray is kind of cemented as the, the franchise point guard. So it, it really is about the, the wings and the, the combo forwards and off guards, whoever you want to throw into that conversation more than it is about those other positional groups, you know, backup point guard, like you said, will get some attention. They have the option of keeping Jeff Teague. He'll be a free agent, but it seems like he wants to stay in Atlanta. It seems like they want to bring him back from everything I can tell. I don't know that for sure, but it, it feels like they were relatively pleased with what he gave them this year. And then Goodwin's on the roster, of course, for kind of insurance against the possibility that Teague or whoever they bring in if it's not Teague is you know washed or just not good so um yeah with, with Trey w- w- that's the kind of the thing when you have a franchise point guard is like you don't have to worry about that position anymore and I, I it was interesting a few weeks ago it feels like a few months ago uh, but Travis Schlenk said that the, they weren't going to draft based on fit they were just going to kind of take the best player available and I thought that was interesting because I think the Hawks as much as any lottery team are in position to draft for fit you know I think it's pretty clear they're not going to draft a point guard. And I know this isn't a draft podcast, but that that's like the one position we kind of know that they're not going to draft because they pretty clearly have that guy in place. So, yeah, we were talking before we came on the air that there may not be as much to talk about in this episode as we've had the last few because we we don't have a ton to say about Goodwin and Teague. And, you know, really, Trey, he kind of is what he is at this point. And, and there's, it's pretty clear 
what he is right now. And, and there's not a whole lot to dive into in terms of like the nitty gritty and the nuances of his game. Yeah, it is kind of funny that, you know, I say that and you and I, I'm sure we'll ha- we'll find some things to talk about on the show. But uh, it is kind of funny to think about maybe not having as much to say about by far the most high profile player on the roster. But um, I think part of that is like people kind of know what Trey Young brings to the table. Part of that is there's a little bit less uncertainty there with uh, them and with other guys. But of course, we'll get to him at the end of the show. We'll tease that out um, and start with Brandon Goodwin, a fan favorite, a local product. And we'll dive into Goodwin now. Just to set the stage a little bit on on Goodwin, he was on a two-way contract, of course, and then was sort of, quote-unquote, promoted uh, to a full contract. He's actually on the roster for next season at a uh, figure of $1.7 million, but that's non-guaranteed. And it's 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 only guaranteed for $100,000 until August 1st, so there's at least some question on whether Brandon will be around. I'm not sure how the guarantee dates are going to be affected by any CBA negotiations that might be happening with the pandemic, etc., but Goodwin's uh, around for cheap if they want him to be, and uh, I think he did what they kind of wanted him to do this year to provide some depth. But uh, he's a little bit older than you might remember as well. He turns 25 in October, which isn't old by any means, but for someone who's not terribly established. Um, I know I've seen this, and I- I've written this, and I've said it, and I think you have probably as well. I don't think the Hawks want Goodwin to be the backup point guard next year coming into the season. I think they're going to want to bring somebody in if it's not Teague. But he does give you some depth as a third guy who could play a little bit with Trey Young. We saw that a little bit. He's a good athlete, etc. Um, what do you what do you make of Goodwin so far? Because and then we'll dive into some uh, sort of strengths and weaknesses. Well, I think based on his production last season, you definitely don't want him as your primary backup point guard. Like I said, I kind of view him as insurance. You know, if if Teague or whoever it is just can't give you what you need, then you bring him in, and and maybe at that point they even look to make another move because I think that's a position they need solidified. We saw what happened this last year when they didn't have a quality backup point guard. And right now, you know, for all the flashes Goodwin showed and as you know, he had his moments. But in in the sort of the aggregate of things, he, he, he wasn't terribly effective. You know, six points a game, just under two assists, didn't shoot the ball well from three, wasn't particularly efficient inside the arc. Although for a, a small guy, you know, a guy with with, you know, about six one, forty nine percent from from two point range isn't terrible, but. If the if the three point shot isn't falling for him, he's not giving you a ton of offensive value. He competes on defense. You know, he fights hard, gets into the ball, uh, gets over screens reasonably well. But just his size limitations are always going to prevent him from being a true impact defender. And if you're if you're asking if he can share the floor with Trey Young for extended minutes, I think that gets tricky, mostly because of Trey's limitations. But it's not like you're going to bump down Trey's minutes to accommodate Brandon Goodwin. So you know, that that's you, you kind of reach the point where you just need Goodwin to be a better defender. And I'm afraid there's only so, you know, he, he can only be so good because of his size limitations. Um, and, and if the offense isn't there, it's just, it's hard to see him being more than a spark plug who gives you a few good games, you know, maybe every couple months, like he did against the magic against the Clippers at various moments last season. But, to me, he didn't show enough uh, sustained competence, I guess, uh, at, at backup point guard to really justify playing that role for a team that hopes to be a playoff team next season. We'll see about that. But they're, they're going to need, I think, a little bit more reliable production from that spot. Yeah, I, mean, I think they I think they probably know this, and I think they absolutely will bring somebody else in. I think he's a, a perfectly fine option as a third point guard, sort of end end of the roster type. You know, defensively, you mentioned his size. I think he's a pretty good defender. The problem is, like you said, if you're pairing that as an off guard, it's not exactly going to be spectacular. And then as a lead guard, 
him running your offense uh, leaves something to be desired. You know, he had the three games this year with 19 points or more, including that famous game in Orlando that you referenced, where uh, he kind of exploded in the Hawks. Actually, won without Trey Young on the road, which is a pretty surprising outcome. But you know, all told, it's still a pretty small sample size. Actually, it's kind of funny. Goom was around all year and actually played less minutes than Teague did for the Hawks. Just because people, you know, he was in the G League for a long time, um, and rightfully so, he was on a two-way contract, but it's kind of a good reminder that it's a pretty small sample size here. But the offense was bad when Goodwin was when Goodwin was on the court this year. It was 94.5 offensive rating. That does not put him in any um, elusive company, because mostly when Trey left the court, it was bad always. But it didn't really improve when he when Goodwin played necessarily. Uh, the defense was better, um, all told. The, actually, the Hawks were six and a half points better per 100 possessions defensively with him on the court than off. But that does not make up for the offensive drop-off. So I think there are still some questions. I still like Goodwin, I think, um, probably more than most. But he's not been terribly efficient. His passing is not fantastic at all But for a point guard. He's a good athlete. He does play hard. And I think if he makes shots, that's kind of the thing for Goodwin always, is that he's a career, I think, almost 39% three-point shooter in the G League. If that was real, uh, Goodwin becomes a lot more interesting. But if his uh, NBA numbers from this year, again, on a small sample size, if his shooting numbers from three, which I believe he made, yeah, 30% from three, um, that's a big gap. If he's not going to be a mid to high 33-point shooter, it gets a lot harder for him to be uh, sort of a rotation quality NBA player. I still like him, but uh, I'm also of the mind that they need to do something else um, as a primary backup option. Yeah, you mentioned the the G League shooting stats. I was going to say, I think he's a better shooter than 30%, which he shot last year. Me too. Um, You know, he he has good form, gets good rotation, the balance is good, all that. I mean, you do need to hit shots at a certain point. But I think think if I were to bet, if he's on the team next year and playing like anything close to regular minutes, that'll probably even out somewhere around like 33, 34%. I would guess he's okay at getting to the basket for a guy his size. Like he's pretty quick and pretty sturdy so he he can kind of change directions and and, you know take those hard pound dribbles and really extend to the basket kind of going by guys using his his size as as leverage when he goes around taller defenders the problem i think is when he gets there he has trouble finishing sometimes he he's got some nice moves like i said he can kind of change directions and switch sides of the basket from time to time and has okay touch off the glass but it's just hard for a guy that size unless you're you know trey young steve nash like some of these elite small guards, Chris Paul, who can really finish around the rim. You typically don't see small dudes shooting a, a very high percentage at the rim, uh, and especially when a lot of teams are kind of leaving their big back as a rim protector these days and taking away the rim. It's just hard for him to really convert those shots efficiently, even if he can get them fairly often. And then, like you mentioned, he's not an amazing passer, so it, it's it's sort of this deal where he can create an okay shot, but he isn't often hitting it, and then... He's also not finding the open man when he gets downhill. So it's there, there's some some kinks to work out, I guess, for his game. And he did play well in the G League, and that's, I guess, a, a, an encouraging sign for maybe what he could be as a backup point guard in the NBA. But I don't think that moment is going to come for him next season. Yeah, I, I think he's an NBA player, but a right now a lower end one. I, I like his defense, but you know, like like, like we, we sort of both said, that can only carry you so far as a smaller guard. It's a good thing to have, but he's going to have to be uh, sort of prove himself as a more functional primary engine offensively, and that is the big question with Goodwin. Um, unless you have other takes, we can probably uh, shelve the Brandon Goodwin discussion. He is a local product, so I'm rooting for him, and I've I've enjoyed my interactions with Brandon. I still uh, I'm a fan, but we'll see how that goes. 
Yeah, that's that's about all I've got to say. Uh, the one thing I remember <laughs> Lloyd Pierce saying about him this year is that, and and it kind of stuck with me, is you know he he kind of he said that when when Goodwin first came in, he basically told him like, "Hey, you're not here because you're from Atlanta, because you're the local kid. You're here because we think you can be an NBA player, and whether that's in Atlanta or Memphis or yep. I believe he's been in Denver before, wherever it is, like this is an opportunity to make a an NBA roster. It's not a, you know, a charity event like for the local kid or whatever. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's, I think that's true. And I think he, he earned the minutes that he got. It's not like he was just a sort of a sympathy roster spot. Um, so he, he definitely, be, like you said, belongs at this level in what role remains to be seen. But I, I did, I do like that, that Pierce told him that, and that was kind of made clear to him is like, we're glad to have you here, but you know, you, you belong here. Like, we feel like you deserve this. This isn't just because you're from Norcross. Oh yeah. And I, I think it's important to keep that in mind. Like, I think that was a very good use of a two-way contract. Um, that's not a huge deal when it, when it comes to like evaluating the Hawks overall, but, um, getting good one on a two-way, um, that made a lot of sense. I think it worked out pretty well. He gave you the depth, the depth that they wanted. And the Hawks now, since the two-way contract basically existed, have always had a point guard as one of their guys. Um, that they've used as their sort of third point guard. And I think it's a pretty good idea in general when you already have your guy in Trey Young um, to have that flexibility. So that makes sense. And uh, I, I think he'll be on the roster next year, so we'll have plenty of time to talk about Brandon Goodwin. Okay, before we get to Jeff Teague, a word from the good folks at Built Bar. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever, and there are many reasons to love Built Bar on top of the absolutely incredible taste that Built Bar brings. It's also fantastic for anyone that's trying to be health conscious with the ability to lose or maintain weight while indulging in a fantastic treat. Bars are low calorie, low sugar, high protein, and high fiber, and quite honestly, it's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Each bar is covered in 100% chocolate. And like some of the competitors out there in the market, the bars are soft and easy to chew. I can tell you that I absolutely love the banana nut, the banana nut flavor, and it's my favorite by far. But it does not mean anything else other than the fact that, that that one is fantastic, and the rest of them are quite good as well, including a peanut butter brownie flavor that I really, really enjoy. In fact, there are 16 amazing flavors to choose from, and they all bring a spectacular profile of flavors to the table. I would absolutely recommend Built Bar, and in order to check that out for yourself, go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo, use the promo code locked on to get ten dollars off your first order that is promo code locked on for ten dollars off at builtbar.com it is a perfect day to try built bar all right ben let's talk about jeff teague uh former hawk now current hawk again um got a lot of attention when they traded for him uh that was one of the more bizarre trades you'll ever see because no one in the entire nba inside or outside atlanta understood why the wolves made the trade Everyone knew why the Hawks made the trade because it was a slam dunk for them. But um, with that out of the way, Teague was, you know, okay-ish when he came back to Atlanta. He's not the same player that he used to be. I think that was pretty clear in Minnesota. He was not, you know, Teague was an all-star at one point, which people have kind of forgotten. Um, And used to be, I would say, a top half of the league NBA point guard um, in terms of starters. Now he's not really that guy anymore. But looking ahead a little bit, He'll be interesting to monitor this summer, and we can get to that at some point here if we want to, but there are not that many point guards available on the market this summer, which is kind of a interesting situation, especially with the limited free agency that could happen if we get some weirdness with the schedule and the CBA, etc. So Teague, like you referenced earlier, the Hawks said all the right things when it comes to liking Jeff. He said all the right things about wanting to be back in Atlanta. 
He's still unrestricted, so there's nothing the Hawks can do to make him stay in terms of like contractually, but they can pay him more than anybody else they want to. We'll see. Um, but what, what was your impression of uh, of Jeff's return? Albeit uh, it was very very short by the time he by the time the season actually well, I won't say ended uh, came to a came to a uh, hiatus. Well, he needs to shoot more. That was the biggest thing that I yes. took away. And this has always kind of been Jeff's thing. Is like and by the way, they all uh, it was kind of hilarious how open. Uh, Lloyd Pierce was in saying that yeah. to the media. I mean, we all noticed it too, but that was one of the things that Lloyd did not hold back on. He was very, uh, very consistent in talking about how Teague needed to be more needed to be more aggressive, and that usually meant shooting more. And he's been a good shooter for a long time. It's just that he's always had this thing where he wants to catch, pump fake, and then kind of do that, you know, hezzy jab step almost, where he he drives left past the defender and you know put, uses that little scoop shot off the glass I my my like lasting image of Jeff Teague's game is catching the ball at the top of the key pump faking out of a wide open three and then blowing by a defender and and like scooping it off the glass with his right hand on the left side of the basket uh, I'm sure you can envision the exact same play having watched him oh yeah so many years but um, at this point he the, the problem is that he doesn't have the speed that he used to or the first step and so where he used to be able to make up that space that defenders would give him because he wasn't going to shoot it now they're able to close that a little bit more easily and stay with him because he's not the same explosive north-south athlete that he used to be uh, or or the finisher around the rim, you know, the vertical athlete finishing over defenders through whatever it is. So, yeah, I mean, and, and like I said, he's always been a decent shooter. So I think this is the point in his career where he's going to have to be a more willing shooter. And and he 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 has a certain style of play that he likes to play. And, you know, at a certain point, you need to change that. Uh, as you become a veteran as you get older so that's the biggest thing I thought he was a, a pretty good facilitator on offense I, he really ran the second unit pretty well much better than the backup point guards before him although that's not a <laughs> super high bar but I mean he, there were games he'd like very quietly finished with seven or eight assists and you you don't even notice he's doing it he just kind of effortlessly collapses defenses kicks out finds open guys and racks up assists uh, pretty pretty effortlessly and quietly so I think that's a good trait to have in a backup point guard, just gets guys involved and is able to penetrate and collapse defense and just make stuff happen off the dribble. The Hawks didn't have a lot of those guys last year. The scoring, he's never been particularly efficient on offense, always been a, a decent guy getting to the line and making free throws. That's helped his true shooting percentage. But as a, as a two-point shooter, he's never been amazing. So I think at this point, his role is kind of just to take care of the second unit offense and make sure guys are in the right spots make sure the ball's in the right spot maybe create a little bit at the end of the shot clock and just run a pick and roll from time to time and make sure the offense is is moving smoothly I don't think you need him to do much more than that frankly because Trey Young's probably playing 36 35 minutes next season uh, especially when it counts so you know I think I think for what the Hawks need their backup point guard to do next season Teague is probably qualified. I do think he's better than what he showed on offense last season in Atlanta. It seemed like he never quite got his footing underneath him. He was he was pretty good in Minnesota before the trade. So I, I think the the actual Jeff Teague, if you want to project to next season, is probably somewhere between who he was in Minnesota and who he was in Atlanta. And if he's on the high end of that, I think that's a perfectly fine outcome for the Hawks. Maybe they look to to go somewhere else in free agency, bring in a more of a of an impact guy, someone who's going to make a little bit more of a difference. But I don't think you need your backup point guard to be a huge difference maker when you have one of the best offensive point guards in the NBA in the starting lineup. 
Yeah, and that's that's important. I, I mean, we've we've all we all talked about how important backup point guard was for Atlanta, but that isn't the same thing as needing to invest highly in the in the position because of what you just said. You're going to have, provided Trey Young is healthy, you're going to have high end point guard play for 35 ish minutes per game. Um, but the problem is the Hawks had just a gaping black hole after Trey Young, and that's why it was so glaring. Um, that's what you have to avoid now, and that's what Teague kind of allowed them to do, which is not have a black hole behind Trey Young. You know, Teague was not fantastic in his limited stint. You know, you mentioned this before. We were talking about the sort of hesitancy to be aggressive offensively. Um, he only attempted 33s um, after he arrived in Atlanta, and he had the, that was the lowest three-point attempt rate of his career. Um, at least of his modern career after his first two seasons when he was kind of a backup learning how to shoot, uh, essentially, and also a career-low usage rate for Jeff Teague. And again, this is all small sample size, but if they bring him back, which they could certainly do, they're just going to need him to be more aggressive. You know, Jeff's always had... If you want to knock Teague, even in his prime, people always thought he was kind of... Uh, you know, hot and cold kind of player. And I don't necessarily think that was always true. I think he's fairly consistent at times. But the one thing that you couldn't always rely on with Teague, even when he was at his best, was the fact that there would be nights when he would just kind of look sleepy out there. And that's not, you know, the worst thing in the world, especially as a backup. You could certainly take that a lot easier now than you could back then because he's not going to dictate your offense. And I think he's a perfectly fine to even better than that backup point guard in the NBA right now. I don't think you want Teague as your starter uh, in the same way that you would have maybe even two years ago around the NBA. But if he's your, if he's your, if he's your backup, you're in perfectly fine shape. Um, it's just interesting to uh, look at the way he uh, offensively was not producing at a super high level in Atlanta, but it could be sample size stuff there and getting reacquainted to a new, a new situation. My worry, and this is my worry with a lot of backup point guards, especially ones that um, the Hawks might be looking at, is defensively. He had pretty ugly defensive numbers, with uh, at least the Hawks did, with him, with him on the court this year. He is not as athletic as he used to be. He was never huge, even when uh, he was younger. Um, he wasn't quite as bad in Minnesota with, with some of those numbers, but I think it's probably accurate to talk about how Teague is a below-average defender at this point in time. Again, not the end of the world, but now uh, it kind of does limit you, because I think ideally something I've always said, I wonder if you agree with this, that if you were trying to craft a backup point guard in a lab for this team, it would be someone who could play with Trey Young at a pinch, and that means someone who's probably a little bit bigger and also someone who could play defense. Um, and Teague is neither of those things, probably. Yeah, he's not incredibly quick at this point. He's not super strong. I mean, he's he's fairly bulky, but that's for a point guard, you know, for a right. guy who you're asking to guard twos and maybe sometimes even threes. I don't know if they would ever play three point guards together, but... For that role, like he's not incredibly strong, um, and and then the just the lateral quickness, the size, the the wingspan, he doesn't really have a lot of that stuff. The numbers with him and Trey on the floor together were were really really bad defensively, worse than than even. And you that's might not think. and that's not going to change, by the way. I mean, maybe it won't be that bad, but I, I, this is one of the things. If you were trying to argue against them bringing Teague back, this is the this is probably my the way that I would argue against it is that. I do not think that there is much of a world, maybe maybe a couple minutes a game, but you can't really get by with those two guys playing together defensively. And maybe they don't care about that. Maybe the offense would be good enough where it wouldn't matter in small, small stints and to just kind of navigate the minutes in the regular season. But um, if you're going to invest real money at backup point guard, you would ideally find someone who can play with Trey a little bit better than T can. I think, I think my problem would be, 
they're going to still try this, in my opinion. I think we saw that. They probably played Teague and Young together more than I would have. Um, maybe that's just trying to figure out if it works or not, but that would be a, a concern that I would have if he was back. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I'm a little lower on the possibility of signing Fred Van Vliet than a lot of people seem to be. That's a name you hear floated around a lot as potentially part of the Hawks offseason, a potential target. You know, I think we've talked about this before offline, but you know, part of what allows Van Vliet to defend two guards the way that he does is that Kyle Lowry can also do the same thing in Toronto, and OG Ananobi's right next to him, and Mark Gasol's at the rim and all this. So he's really in the perfect defensive structure to do that. And and to his credit, Van Vliet is super feisty. He plays hard. He's a gnat. He's quick. He sticks to people's bodies off the ball. He's a great defender, but if you're asking him to also defend two guards in Atlanta's system, that's a little bit of a different ask when Trey Young is the guy that he's sharing the floor with. So I, I'm lower on their potential fit than most people seem to be, and, and I think he's a guy that's going to command a lot of money more than yeah. someone like Teague Wood or a DJ Augustine or whoever. So uh, that that's just like not not that we need to go necessarily go into the whole should Fred Van Vliet sign an Atlanta conversation, <laughs> but just as, as sort of a, a sidebar, like that's I think he lacks some of the qualities you would want. Like when I think of the ideal backup point guard, and, and the, this theoretical candidate would probably be worse than this guy. But it's it's someone like Lonzo Ball is kind of who I think of, like a, a bigger point guard who can pass and defend both guard spots and just a smart player who can also space the floor. That's not to say that the Hawks will or should trade for Lonzo Ball or anything like that, but that's no, sort it, of the it's, archetype. It's the, it's the archetype, of, yep, exactly. exactly. That, that's like, he is exactly the archetype that you would want next to Trey. And and for that reason, you know, I think Lonzo is a really good and valuable player because you look around the league and how many guys are there like that, you know, with with that particular skill set. Um, so yeah, that's a different conversation, my my affinity for Lonzo Ball's game. But that's sort of the player you want to look at. The problem is that this free agent class is not only thin on stars kind of at the top of the class, but it's thin on those sorts of combo guards that the Hawks, you know, ideally would be able to sign. So you look through the, the point guard or lead guard crop of free agents this summer and there just aren't a ton of those guys that you really feel comfortable that are A, better than Jeff Teague, and B, can fit with with Trey. So I think for that reason, the, the most likely outcome here is that they bring back Teague on like a you know two, three, maybe even one-year deal at like four or five million annually. They can use his bird rights, but doing that would require them to keep his like $26 million cap hold yeah, on their no books, way. which I don't think they'll do because— <laughs> That would prevent them from getting all the way to the 49 million that they could create um, in a in a best case scenario. So they probably renounce those bird rights and then bring him back just using cap space, which they're fortunate to have a lot of cap space. So that's not a problem. Um, but those for people wondering about kind of the mechanics of how this would work and what sort of structure uh, a Teague, you know, a new contract for Teague might look like. That's kind of in the ballpark of what you might expect. Like he's an imperfect player, but I think for what they need. He he fills he checks a lot of the boxes that you would want. Yeah, I mean it's a good point. If you look at some of the names that are out there, without going into them, they all would have similar issues in terms of not being perfect fits. And honestly, you don't have to have a backup point guard that can play with Trey Young. That's the other thing that I'm probably guilty of talking about this too. But it's perfectly fine if you just bring in Jeff Teague or somebody like him and have that guy play 15 minutes a game. That that's that's okay. You don't have to have someone that plays with Trey um, all the time. Um, and honestly, you know, the, the point you've made is that, 
you know, I don't know. Is there's not a whole lot of guys who are who who you could certainly say are better than he is, and anyone who is better than Jeff Teague is probably doesn't want to come to Atlanta with a guy who's already entrenched to play 35 minutes a game who's better than them. That, so logistically, if you just kind of do the the math slash the common sense exercise, you could see a lot of the reasons why Teague makes sense in Atlanta. Exactly. Because yeah. of the fact that he's already talked about how much he likes it here. He's he's lived here. He always likes the city. And I think he's also he's made a lot of money in his career. I'm I'm sure that if he got a deal offered to him that was for double the money, he would take it somewhere else. But if it's close, he might lean to Atlanta in a way that other guys would not for what's going to be a smaller role. I'm not sure if Jeff, if Jeff cares about that. But, you know, barring an injury to Trey Young, you kind of know what the backup point guard role is, role is in Atlanta, and it's not a role that's going to get you a lot of shine. <laughs> like, you're a pure role player, and that's okay. But uh, you kind of need to be okay with that. And T might be at this point. I think he's probably made, I don't know, $100 million in the NBA, maybe more. So I think Jeff's probably going to be fine um, in some respects. But uh, we'll see. He, he does make a lot of sense, even if it's not like an overwhelmingly exciting fit. Um, they could, the Hawks could certainly do worse than Jeff Teague. They could. They could. And, and yeah, I, th- I think you, you said it right when you, you said, like, it's sort of, you, you have to thread this really tight needle of guys who you can afford and guys who you would want to bring in that are good enough to be your backup point guard, but also aren't so good that they wouldn't want to come to Atlanta because they'd be a backup, you know? So it's, it's a really thin group of, of candidates there. And Teague is kind of right in the middle of it, which is part of the, you know, another part of the reason why I think he's probably most likely to just come back to Atlanta. You know, I mentioned DJ Augustine. He's another guy that, you know, maybe you could see the fit there, but he's probably too good to play 15 minutes a game for a fringe playoff team. You know, he, he could probably do better elsewhere. So it is just, logistically like you said a really challenging fit to kind of work around and by the way uh i was guessing but i was pretty close uh jeff teague's estimated career earnings 96.6 million dollars so it's pretty good it's more than i've made at my job yes and obviously i don't say but by the way save me guy who will now screaming at the at the computer about the fact that uh that is before taxes i i understand but he's made a lot of money (laughs) Uh, he also leads the Hawks in all-star appearances. Uh, tied for tie, tie with tied, Trey Young. Tied for first place with one appearance. That's not true. Uh, Vince Carter's still on the roster, so Vince. Wins. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. As long as we're, as long as the season has not been officially canceled, then or if the That's Hawks true. have not been sent home, Vince is still on the roster at this moment. So Vince, uh, <laughs> not to go down this rabbit hole, but uh, Vince was represented as uh, one of the top 74 players in history. Uh, according to the ESPN thing that came out this week, and uh, I made sure to claim that uh, as a Hawks victory on the Twitter machine. <laughs> who is who is the other one? Um, the... Tracy McGrady. Tracy McGrady. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The one who uh, was and also Moses Malone. Alone. Moses Malone, who uh, was definitely much more of a factor than either Vince or Tracy was in Atlanta, but was not his best in Atlanta either. Yes. Was a guy that you always want to mention. Around definitely the Hawks. a Sixer. Uh, yeah, definitely not a hawk for sure. He was he, he'd be. I think the Hawks would be like fourth or fifth on his franchise rankings. But he was still a player in Atlanta. He was not. Yeah. He was not like Vince or T Mac that where they were like at the absolute end of their rope. Regardless, we're in a rabbit hole. Uh, you know what? Jeff, I actually now that I think about it, I do remember the T Mac era in Atlanta. Uh, I will. I will ride with this. We I talked about that not, not that long ago with Robbie Kelly on a podcast uh, and with Tower Jones. Um, I will. I will ride with the fact that T Mac was actually not terrible in Atlanta. He like could he shoot was a obviously done. The floor. Yeah, he, he was obviously done, and everybody knew that. 
but he he was it wasn't like totally ineffective. Like he was not a complete zero uh, in Atlanta, so uh, it could have been worse. <laughs> to, yeah. to be sure, a lot of guys have ended worse than Tracy did in Atlanta. Regardless, this, I, I I covered him actually in the second NBA game I ever covered in 2014. Wow, that was a uh, was that the only year he was in Atlanta? Yes, he it was a one year yeah. stint. For, yeah, so uh, I guess technically Tracy. I covered Tracy McGrady for yeah. one game. Congratulations, you've you've covered uh, both cousins with Vince and Tracy. That's right. You, uh, well done on that. Um, okay, I think that's probably enough on Jeff Teague for now. We will, uh, of course, get into Trey Young momentarily. Before we get to Trey, here's a word from the good folks at Blinkist. It can sometimes be hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more when you don't have more free time. You can't read or work on personal development. There's an incredible app that solves this problem. I would recommend it, and it's honestly one of the best and ultimate life hacks. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, or web browser, and it takes the best key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books and brings them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Successful people are well known for reading a lot of books and Blinkist is made for busy people like you that just want to get the main points of a book quickly so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to read and finish books during your commute, on your lunch break, or even while you exercise. 12 million people are already using Blinkist right now and has a massive growing library from self-help books to business, health, history, etc, etc. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestseller lists, as well as classic nonfiction titles that you've always meant to read, but you never actually had time to do so. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist is a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash NBA to try it free for seven days and save 25% off a new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash NBA to start a seven-day free trial from there. You'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash NBA. Ben, we've come to the end, and it is Trey Young. Uh before this is a, sort of a gimmick, but I want to do it here. Before we get into a discussion about Trey, I am going to read you a bunch of the rankings of Trey Young's statistical categories this year in the entire NBA. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. Uh, I'm going to do two sections. The first one is total is totals. The second one is per game stats. Here we go. Trey Young, 16th in the league in total minutes, eighth in field goals made. Third in field goal attempts, sixth in three pointers made, fifth in three three pointers attempted, second in free throws made, third in free throws attempted, six sorry second in assists, second in total points, and first in total turnovers. Now the per game stats: eleventh in minutes per game, fourth in points per game, second in assists per game. Those are all really good. Uh, except for the turnovers, but even then, all the guys at the top of the turnover list are really good players because you don't have the ball in your hands enough to lead, lead, lead the league in turnovers unless you're a really good player. And that doesn't even get into like, for instance, there's the like the, there's the there's the all in one stats like he's 12th in PER, he's third in offensive PIPM, he's fourth in offensive Raptor, he's 12th in uh, VORP, 11th in offensive win shares, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I say all of that, Ben. Um, it's been a long time since a hawk has been in the top 10 of like any offensive category and Trey Young's in the top 10 in a lot of offensive categories. Well, if they tracked screen assists back in 2015, I'm sure Al Horford and Paul Millsap would find their way in there somehow. Listen, I will ride for Paul and Al. Um, and I will always say their impact will be on the box score, but, uh, 
it kind of goes to the point, like, I firmly believe that Al Horford is the best player the Hawks have had in a long, long time. Um, maybe you could argue, Joe, those guys are kind of side by side. Um, but even then, like Al Horford was not making the top 10 in any categories um, offensively. I think the last time that any, that any Hawk before Trey Young was a top even 20 scorer in the NBA was probably Joe Johnson. Like it's been a long time. So just to, that, that, just to sort of start, start off there, we all kind of understand that Trey put up gaudy numbers, but especially just this simple reality that Trey Young in year two finished, well, again, not finished, uh, at this moment is fourth in points per game and second in assists per game, and he did so on 60% true shooting. It's just kind of remarkable to say out loud. It is. It is. It's. I almost don't know how to calibrate it because he Trey has sort of become a divisive player in a lot of ways, even though he's only in his second year. Um, and I don't... We don't necessarily need to write the verdict on Trey Young at this point in his career, you know. So I well done. I'm more than he's twenty one years old. <laughs> yeah. No so reason. so like I'm more than happy letting these debates just kind of happen and then waiting till he actually plays a meaningful NBA minute to sort of form a conclusion. But you know, on the one hand, like we've kind of reached a point where per game stats and and you know the raw production has become a little overrated, um, and and you know they're are more layers than just he averaged this many points and this many assists. On the other hand, if you rank in the top five in points and assists per game in the NBA, that means something. You know, it's not everything, but it's it's also not nothing. I think you could say the same with Jan, with uh, John Collins, where, you know, 20 and 10 isn't everything. It's probably an overrated statistical threshold, but it's not nothing either. And so that's kind of how I view Trey, where like, okay, so, some people definitely overrate how good he is, but I actually think there's been a little bit of an overcorrection to that where people now yeah. sort of um, discredit is not the right word, but maybe just overlook or, or show skepticism of, of how good he, he really is offensively. And I think like, I don't think it's a stretch to say he's one of the eight best offensive players in the NBA right now. Um, and obviously that the defense poses its own set of concerns. He might be one of, he, he's definitely one of the eight worst defensive players in the league, maybe one <laughs> of the two worst. So yeah, um, that's bad. that's its own thing. But offensively, man, he is really, really good. He is so good to to average, what, nine assists per game. And you talked about this a little bit uh, with Nate Duncan a couple weeks ago. But on that team with how little shooting the Hawks had to average that many assists, I mean, it's it's almost it almost breaks your brain to think about if the Hawks could just shoot a league average percentage from three, you know what those box score numbers would look like which again are not everything but it, like he, it's it's crazy to think that he did that with with almost almost like wearing a weighted vest you know he's kind of working yeah. uphill and yet he still managed to produce the way he did i think from a, a shooting standpoint he's he's one of the best in the league at this point when you combine the volume the difficulty the depth the percentage the the all just every component of shooting he he has it and and that's a, a super valuable offensive weapon. You know, he stretches the defense. He makes you, he kind of warps your entire game plan. And there are very few players in the entire NBA who really force you to just completely recalibrate the way that you play defense. You know, that's a really rare class of player. And he's reached that point in year two. You know, he bends defenses to a degree that very few people do. Uh, obviously, his passing is is unbelievable just to watch. I mean, put aside the the effectiveness, effectiveness of it, the production of it, just watching him read the floor and, and 
throw no look passes and behind the backs and kickouts and lobs. All of it's just really, really fun. It's very exciting. And then you add in the fact that he's really good at manipulating defenses and creating those windows. He's really good at holding defenders in place while he passes to another spot that he's not looking at. Just every component of passing except for the ability to pass over defenses he basically has. And even then he makes up for that by, you know, kind of sneaking through the cracks of a defense and and finding guys that way. He still has he has pretty good angles on his his releases of passes, which allows him to sort of pass bigger than his size, if that makes any sense. So just as an offensive player, I think he's really, really good. Um, he, he is obviously super pick and roll heavy, uh, can isolate a little bit. I think his speed is actually an underrated component of his game. He he much more so than than in year one. To me, he can really blow by guys now in a way that he couldn't when he was younger. I think that's a really important addition to his game that he's made. Um, and then obviously the shooting ticked up, but really just across the board. Like my my biggest takeaway from his season was just how much he improved basically every element of his game. And and that's a really hard thing to do, especially when you're jumping, you know, from a top what, sixty or seventy player, whatever he was, to a top 25 or so player, you know, the, it, it becomes incrementally harder to make those improvements the better you get. And so for him to reach that class of offensive player as quickly as he did, you know, it, it's almost you can almost get lost in kind of the 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 totality of it all and sort of overlook how impressive each individual component of his improvement was on offense. And I'll continue to specify on offense. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's it was really remarkable. And 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 I think in some ways, he's become a little bit overlooked as an offensive engine just because he, he doesn't really have the talent to, to, to capitalize on all the advantages he creates. And, you know, we'll, we'll know more about what kind of weapon he is once the Hawks have better talent, once they have higher aspirations uh, and, and everyone kind of comes into their own on that team. But I was, I was pretty blown away by, by Trey, what, what he did offensively this season. And I really try to temper expectations and, and my own opinions on these kinds of things because you know, I worry about being too close to it and maybe overhyping or, you know, underhyping certain guys and 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 losing the perspective of of, you know, how they rank in comparison to the league. But there were very few players this season that I saw who were better offensive engines than Trey Young. And that's that's a pretty impressive thing for a six two sophomore point guard. Uh, yeah, I, I obviously agree with all of that. I think, you know, I'm aware of my reputation and uh, a lot of people would probably describe it as being negative and I wouldn't say that. I think it's more I try to be as realistic as possible and try to not be a homer as possible as someone who has lived in Atlanta for 30 years and grew up a Hawks fan and was used to take a ticket holder and now tries not to do that anymore. Um, so Which I is think, why I, I am wary of trying of sounding like I'm overhyping him. Well, like no, and I, and, yeah, yeah, and I, 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 I think people know that I don't do that and I think – that gives me some some more credibility when I when I say similar things to what you've just said about Trey Young. I think, you know, I'm not a homer in really any way, and I, I still believe what you said is true about him being, you know, pretty unquestionably a top ten offensive player offensive player in the league this season, um, maybe even higher than that. And I think, you know, you, you said you want to use the word discredit. I, I think it's interesting. You know, some some people probably overvalue to the extent that, I, that, 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 that that's actually possible to overvalue the stats that he put up because they were ridiculously impressive. And because if you want to try to tell me that Trey Young's already like a top five player in the league, I wouldn't, no I would way. not agree with, I would not agree with that. No but way. on the other side, 
there are a lot, I think probably even more people that would tell you that like, would like try to knock him down and talk about how it's, you know, it's just Atlanta and it's this, uh, it's just the stat padding and all this stuff. And it's like, well, if, if you watch him, you know, you, you can't really fake, you know, 30 and 10 essentially on 60% true shooting. And if you look beyond that, and we're going to do that now, it's not just the box score stuff. You know, the team was, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot better when he played. You know, there are definitely there have definitely been stars who put up numbers and don't really make that team impact. And uh, to your point, I do think we will not be able to judge this really until we see him surrounded by better talent or more established, um, you know, more experienced talent. But even now, you can sort of see the jump. For instance, he had the best on-off numbers of any guy on the team this year that was around all season long. The Hawks, the Hawks were about seven and a half uh, points or so per other possessions better when he played. And yes, they were still not great when he played overall because this is a pretty bad team, but they were absolutely wretched when he left the court the entire season. And on offense, which we both talked about, obviously, you know, his defensive concerns, we'll touch on it at some point on this podcast, but everybody knows the deal about how bad he is. It's not really like a breaking ground kind of thing there. But offensively, you know, I think the number, yeah, I'm looking at it now, the Hawks were, this is not a joke, 15.5 points per 100 possessions better when he played versus when he didn't on offensive on offense this this season that's that's made up like that that's a ridiculous figure and again some of that is the absence of, back, of a backup point guard I totally understand that but it also tells you like listen when Trey Young played this year the Hawks had a 111.2 offensive rating that is a very good offensive basketball team and again Aside from aside from John Collins, who we both talk about and we know how good he was this year, there was not a whole lot else for Trey Young to work with. And, and I know there are there there are talented guys. Obviously, you know Hunter Reddish and Herder are all talented guys, but they're still first and second year players that had some growing pains this year. And for Trey Young to to captain a you know a basically what, what amounts to like a top five level offense when he played the game when he played this year is exceptional for a, for a second year player. So. We could do all the plaudits and all that stuff, but like he was awesome offensively. There's no other way around it. You could maybe start to quibble as people have, and I think rightly with like how far can a six-one guy lead you in the playoffs? That's a fair question considering the history of the league. But it's too early for that, in my opinion, to like really focus on that. And the combination of his gravity, his passing, his ball handling, you mentioned his uh, his ability to blow by guys, his foul drawing is a huge component that we'll touch on. He just does pretty much everything well on the offensive end of the floor. And when you factor in his age, you know, no one, I, I say this all the time, no one could have seen this leap coming in year two. I don't think anybody, even the most zealous Trey Young supporter, could have told you what he was going to do in year two with a straight face. Uh, and that there are some the pretty zealous Trey Young supporters out there, Brad. I mean, there there are, but I mean, <laughs> I think even if you ask Travis Schlenk, who you know put his reputation on the line essentially, yeah, yeah. and traded back to tra- to get Troy Young, I think even Travis Schlenk or Lloyd Pierce or whoever else you want to say would admit to you that a second year player like Troy Young was not projected or quote unquote supposed to average what he averaged this year on the efficiency that he did, and that's not a shot at Troy Young. That would be a, that w- that would be appropriate for anyone. I don't think anybody in the history of the league could have been projected, again, projected before the season started in year two at his age to do what he did on offense this year. Like, no one should be, yeah. no one should project that. I mean, that, that would apply to Zion. So, for instance, Zion is like the, the new generational prospect right now. If you tried to tell me that in year two, 
Zion was going to be as good on offense as Trey Young was this year, I would tell you that is extremely aggressive and you can't project it. Is it possible? Sure. But projecting it, no, you can't do that. It's the same for, it's the same for Luka Doncic, which is the obvious example. Even, you know, yeah. there are people on both sides of that argument still to this day, but even if you were higher on Doncic, no one no one thought he was going to be as good as he was in year two. Like, it, it's still it's still possible to happen, but Trey Young was so good this season on offense. Again, as a 21-year-old second-year player at a position where point guard takes a little bit longer sometimes than other positions. So... All that said, he was really good. We all we all kind of understand that, but the impact stuff is important to me too. Like how, how much how much weight do you put in that? Because you know we talk about on offs on off numbers, and there is some context that's definitely needed, especially with this one with backup point guard. But it still matters to me that when he played, the Hawks were a legitimately good offensive team, and when he didn't, they were the worst offensive team in the league by far. It's pretty amazing, and and again, I'll, I'll go back to the lack of shooting. It, it's just. You know, I, I just keep wondering, okay, how efficient could they be? What would the offense look like if basically anyone could make a shot for the first half of the season outside of Trey? You know, that's that that's a really kind of an insane thing to think about. And, and one of the reasons, like if you want to make the case that, yes, it is realistic that the Hawks will make the playoffs next season, it's that they could have like a top, I don't know, eight offense, maybe like in a best case scenario, they could be like a top six or seven offense the defense probably won't be amazing but if you're assuming like decent shooting league average shooting from everyone out let's say outside of trey and kevin herter then there's a path toward them being an elite offense next season and that's the best case you can make for that argument that they can make the playoffs it is again i'll I'll say it's, it's like it's tough to calibrate this kind of stuff because we are in this era of you know gaudier box score numbers on offense for superstars than we've basically ever seen before maybe other than the the 60s when pace was just insane but the pace is fast today we're seeing much more of that heliocentric offensive style where it's it's much easier that the the game is built for a single offensive player to do the bulk of the heavy lifting and that leads to greater box score numbers um it's we just see these younger guys like trey and luca it, it feels like these young offensive engines are kind of reaching that all-star level earlier than we've seen in previous years. You could even throw Ben Simmons and Jason Tatum into that category as well. Just these guys who who become really good offensive players at super young ages. Um, and I wonder if that's a trend or if it's, that's just kind of this five-year period that we're in. I don't know. But either way, I, I think it's it's hard to argue that it's not – it's hard to argue that Trey Young is not an elite offensive player Right now, whether you think the, the the numbers overstate or understate how good he actually is, and there are people on both sides of that argument as well, but it, it is hard to make the case that he's not an elite offensive player right now. It, it's the question is how do you weigh that against his defense? You know how damaging that is versus how valuable his offense is. How much do you take into account teammate quality? How much do you care about his his team's record? You know when you're considering All Star and All NBA and that kind of thing, um, but for me, like I, just as someone who, who, like you, has watched pretty much every possession that he played uh, this past season, it's just it. At a certain point, your eyes kind of tell you what you need, and 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 the numbers back it up as well. And it's not to say that you know he's he's Demar Derozan where he looks amazing and then you <laughs> right. dive into the numbers and the impact isn't quite there. You mentioned the sixty percent true shooting. I think a couple of other relevant numbers: thirty nine percent usage and forty two percent assist percentage, which are both 
you know, basically the highest in the league, if not the highest in second or third. I do find it amazing. It, it just kind of blows my mind. Like 99 out of 100 players, if you traded them on draft night for Trey Young and an additional pick, given how good Trey has been to this point, you probably win that trade, what, 99 out of 100 times? And oh, yet, at, at least. And I mean, I, I and think it's... Yet it's possible that they could yeah. still come out on the losing end of that, which is not no. a slight to Trey. It's just like, how good do you have to be to, to have a team trade for Trey Young and an additional draft pick and still your team wins the trade? I mean, that's just like, I don't mean to, to you know, divide uh, the listenership or anything or turn this into a Luka Doncic love session, but it really is amazing. <laughs> but I mean, and on the flip side, because, you know, it's obviously a, a hot button topic and people are dug in and I, I totally understand that. On the flip side, it's actually it's actually crazy that Luca could be as good as he's been, and the Hawks could still, with a straight face, say we're good with it because of yeah, how good Trey, exactly. because of how good Trey Young's been. So it's uh it's one of those trades that like if you're hoping on both if you're you know on either side of it, you know you're hoping that it's one of those deals that becomes like good for both teams because those deals kind of do happen and you end up with a generational comparison that just keeps going and going and going and that's not the worst thing in the world um and this one has even obviously the extra mojo of them being traded for each other but yeah it's they're uh you know trey young is fantastic there's no way around that um yeah that is going to be one of the most fascinating trades of the last like when we look back in 20 years that'll be maybe the most fascinating trade of that 20 year period just because it's a challenge trade that that's why i mean just it's, because of how good both players are and yeah. and have become it like you just never see that you you rarely ever see that happen no i mean yeah you you could see like there's been other other deals like that um involving top 5 picks on draft night but a lot of the time it's clear who it's clear like either somebody misses on one of the picks like for instance the you know the famed uh you know Tatum Fultz trade ended up very going very well for Boston and not so well for Philly um there there have been these kind of deals in the past like you know Chris Webber got traded on draft night like for other you know there there've been player for player Is it trades Hardaway? yeah there there've been there've been player for player trades that worked out for both teams but it's just it's interesting to uh, sort of go down that rabbit hole sometimes I, I do want to ask you about two things about his offense real quickly because that we haven't touched on specifically because they're in my notes and I think they were at least important to note um you mentioned his shooting before I am I want to I want to caveat this by saying I don't worry about his shooting at all at all but um he started out really hot from three this season about 39 percent in the first you know 25 games or so and then he cooled off considerably after that and now cooling off on his volume still allowed for 36% from three for the season on huge volume, and that's still impressive, and that's more than enough. But, you know, there was there was talk in you know, maybe December or January that maybe he made that leap, but he's going to actually be a 40% three-point shooter now, which, on his, again, on, on his volume of attempts, on his, on his, on his difficulty of attempts, 40% three-point shooters, it's basically Steph Curry and nobody else in history that have done what he what that number on that kind of challenging uh in, ter- in, ter- in terms of his actual attempt volume and difficulty um but he did, but he did cool off so do you care a and b do you think he is just going to settle in kind of where he is in that you know slightly below Damian Lillard zone or is it like can he be Damian Lillard which is like the the step down from Steph Curry um and by the way not a shot at Damian Lillard at all but like basically what I'm saying when I say that is like Dame Lillard is like a career you know, 37, 38, 37, 38% three-point shooter. And 
everyone agrees he's an absolutely elite shooter, but because of the volume and the attempts and all that stuff, he's never going to be able to shoot 42% from three. Is Trey going to settle in there where it's like no one's going to care about this because he's so good at, at, at shooting, but percentage-wise, is there any any concern at all that he kind of cooled off to some degree? Not to me. I think Lillard is actually a good comparison. I could see him getting to that that level. Maybe he's. I mean, he's not as strong as Lillard. He probably yeah. won't have the range that Lillard. I mean, Lillard's it's range a, is is <laughs> arguably deeper than Curry's. It's it's insane. I mean, you say that, but Trey routinely attempts thirty two footers, like you know, every single night, basically. And I'm, and I'm not trying That's to argue, true. but it's it's one of those things where you know. People always wanted to do the Curry thing on three-point shooting, and honestly, it's not fair to anybody because Curry is the best shooter of all time, and it's not particularly close. So my, even when Trey was coming into the league and struggling a little bit early on, my, my, my comparison for his shooting has always been Damian Lillard, and it's because yeah. of the fact that I think he can. And by the way, again, Damian Lillard is probably one of the 10 best shooters of all time when you factor in difficulty. So it's not like a shot at anybody, obviously. If he becomes Damian Lillard as a shooter, that's a huge win. But it's more of the combination of, you know, very good percentages, but not 45%. And the extreme difficulty and and the huge volume of attempts. Because we've now seen that Trey Young is going to get three-point shots up, and that's a good thing. He should be taking taking 10 a game. But it's just a question. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like I think 36-37% or whatever the equivalent relative to league average of 37% is yeah. in his prime, you know, depending on how the league average changes, that's probably where he, he evens out, which like you said, on that kind of volume is is pretty amazing. Really good. <laughs> there, is, there is a certain amount of bad shot taking baked into that kind of role, both because your team needs you, you know, at the end of the shot clock or just in an isolation or at the end of a game, your team needs you to take shots that other players on the team just can't take because they're not good enough. So yep. there is a certain level of of difficulty baked into that. And then the other thing is like you can't make a 32 foot pull up unless you take a 32 foot pull up, right? So you're going to miss some of those shots. Some of them are going to be bad shots. There's a line to find and I think this is one of the big areas where Trey can improve is finding the the balance between, you know, when to take that that transition 30 footer and, and kind of use that to propel the team and when that's just not a great shot. You know, when do you take those audacious threes and when do you move the ball and, and let other guys feel it and, and keep the offense moving? I think that's something he could improve on. There were a lot of times this season where he just, I thought, settled for for bad shots. Most often they were super deep threes off of zero ball movement, which sometimes is, you know, it there there's it's easy to kind of go back revisionist and say if it went in, it's a good shot. If it didn't, it's a bad shot. Um but I think there's a, a better balance to be found there, I think, for him. I think the same is true as a passer. You know, when do you try those incredible advantage passes that create wide open layups? And when do you maybe rein it back a little bit and not take those risks? Uh, it, it's a hard balance to find. You know, you, you kind of need you can't have one without the other in a lot of ways, which is difficult. Right. I would say the big difference between him and Lillard is a, a shooter just to kind of address that that sidebar real quick is like Lillard will curl around a screen from 30 feet and shoot basically like it's nothing <laughs> whereas yeah. Trey really needs to bend his knees and get into the shot so I think there's a little bit more versatility with Lillard and and Trey could get there he's he's obviously not as strong which that'll probably change in time even if he never gets to be quite as strong and sturdy as Lillard the the off ball element of it too I think is something that you and I have both talked about it's a you know kind of a big discussion point of how much are they going to use him off the ball 
when when they kind of get the playmakers necessary around him to let him play that role? How much does he want to play that role? To what degree is it is it better for the team to just let him handle the ball? And then when is it better to put it in someone else's hand and weaponize him as an off-ball player? Those are all questions you need to feel out. You know, it's kind of like we're waiting for to to see what the validity the validity excuse me of his production is. We're also kind of waiting to see what his ideal role is in that fully formed system, just because we haven't really gotten the chance to see him play a meaningful basketball game in his career, really, to this point. So yeah. a lot of those questions will just be answered with time, and and I don't think we can necessarily say one way or the other at this point. But I think to to you know make a long story short here, I think 36, 37 percent is about where he he lands, and if he continues taking the, the exact same shot diet that he took this season. If he has the exact same shooting year for the rest of his career that he had this year, I think the Hawks would be thrilled with that. Oh yeah. I mean, and the, the second part of the second part of what I wanted to ask you about, about his offense uh, sort of plays into that too. So I guess I'll just go to that now and we'll kind of cap it off his offense, offensive discussion. But um, the other, the other big thing that he did is free throw shooting. Now he's always going to be a good, free, a good free throw shooter in terms of accuracy because he's just a great shooter and that's what happens. But even within this season, he took a massive jump in free throw attempts. Um, so basically, from January first to the end of the season, that's more than half of the year in terms of the actual slate. Um, he averaged eleven point one free throw attempts per game. Uh, that is uber elite. And shot eighty percent, sorry, eighty-seven percent from the free throw line, which is also quite good. Um, before that, it was seven point seven free throw attempts per game. So that may not seem like a huge jump, but three plus attempts per game is a massive jump in season. Um, I'm not sure we can assume the eleven number is the real number moving forward, but I, I think we all kind of know that Trey is uh, already an extremely advanced foul drawer in uh, the best possible way for his own team. It's probably frustrating if you're on the opponent uh, on the opposing team, but Trey is so good body control wise at getting into guys and creating that foul trouble uh, and selling it as well to officials, etc. Um, so basically, you know, it's like that makes up for a lot of ground and that really, really helps to prop up his overall efficiency because when you're that kind of free throw shooter and you get to the line that often, it's uh, honestly the comparison that the only one I think you can make for that particular element is James Harden because Trey averaging 11.1 free throw, free throw attempts per game. If that number was real for the whole season, he would have been second. Um, and kind of in the, the only other guy in that tier is, is Harden who led the league this year at 11.8 per game. Um, so it's basically, he may not be Harden level at that, but if you're in the discussion with James Harden and foul drawing and effectiveness, that uh, is a huge weapon, and again, may not always be aesthetically pleasing to everyone, but I cannot tell you how important and uh, interesting that is as an efficiency point. Because if he can, if he can sort of maintain that, um, the shooting from the field may not ever look like you want it to look. As a, for instance, like if you're a traditional observer and don't like care about the quote unquote advanced numbers, which I'm not sure that are advanced anymore, but like his field goal percentage may not ever look great. But it doesn't matter when you shoot that that volume of threes and get to the line that often. That's how you maintain a uh, elite level shooting clip in terms of the true shooting percentage. You know what's funny? Trey does not catch nearly as much heat as Harden nope. does for the foul drawing. He will. But eventually. I, actually, I actually think his <laughs> fouls are a lot more dubious than Harden's. <laughs> like I, I think. I mean, once once Trey gets, and I'm with you on this, by the way. Once the spotlight is on, I think actually Nate right. Duncan brought that up. You watched that that interview I did earlier with Nate. 
Um, he brought up this as well. I, I think it, it will be interesting in time, both as more people watch Hawks games nationally and also if they get into the playoffs, how much of it is going to translate. I think a lot of it will. But um, I'm actually with you, especially given his size. It's even easier for him to sell some calls because he can kind of just go down. And it looks like a smaller guy got hit by a bigger guy, whereas Harden's like a tank um, right. in a way that Trey is not. But again, it, it, it may seem like I'm like I'm taking a shot, and I promise I'm not. This is a very, very good thing for Trey Young that he's so good at drawing fouls. But uh, yeah, the Harden comparison on, on that particular front is one that I think is going to not go away. And I think Trey is going to get more attention for his foul drawing instead of less. Yes, I agree. And I would say the big difference there is that Harden sort of creates contact, whereas Trey accentuates it. And he does some element of drawing it, too, like especially coming off the, you know, either the DHO or the high ball screen and just stopping and letting the guy run into him and chucking up a shot, which to me is not the most aesthetically pleasing thing in the world, but it's easily the most efficient play in basketball. So if you can get yourself three free throws, I don't begrudge players at all for doing it. I don't begrudge coaches at all. Um, for encouraging it. And and that's kind of a line that the referees have to have to find as well as the league office and all of that. But yeah, I mean, I, I the big thing to me is like the, the free throw percentage, you know, not only did he increase his volume, but his percentage went up by, I think, three or four points from from his rookie year, which when you're shooting that many free throws, every percentage point kind of counts. And and like you said, it, that that ticked up over the second half of the season as well compared to the first. So yeah, I do wonder how it translates to the the postseason. You know, you typically see a little bit more physicality in in the postseason without a whistle, and so you know, you you wonder about that kind of the Lou Williams conundrum, where it it works in the regular season, not so much in the playoffs. We'll see. I do think he has enough in the rest of his game that he he'll still be fine. You know, it's not like taking away his you know four or five free throw attempts per game is going to completely derail his entire offensive game, but it, it could you know, kind of change the way defenses are allowed to play him. Maybe they can get away with a little bit more hand checking and pushing and grabbing off the ball. Kind of like you see with Steph Curry. I think that's one of the reasons that he's not quite as effective in the playoffs as he is in the regular season, but most players are not as effective in the playoffs as they are in the regular season. And if Trey falls into that category, I still think he's going to be quite good in the postseason. We'll have to wait and see, but I, I think regardless of, of whether it's as effective. I still think the free throw line is going to be a huge part of his game, regular season or playoffs. And like I said, just the rest of his offensive game, it's not like the rest of that disappears just because he's not taking as many free throws. So I, I'm with you on, on pretty much everything you said. And, you know, I, 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 I kind of wish the league would, would do something about some of these three shot fouls, but you know, at the same time, like it's guys, there are so many guys across the league that benefit from it that, you know, I wonder how that would change for players like Trey, players like Harden, players like Dame Lillard even, you know, if they kind of legislated that out and changed the way they call it. But it's a really difficult thing, and especially with a guy like Trey who is small and can accentuate that contact and can can walk kind of right up to the line where you're not really sure. If it's close enough to being a foul that you kind of have to call it because if you don't, then you might have missed an obvious call. So it's just it's a really hard thing for the refs and he's gotten really, really good at putting them in that predicament, which kind of, like, in a weird way, he complains a lot to the refs, which I'm sure you've noticed as well. Yes. And a lot of the time it's like, all right, stop whining, you know. But in in, in some way I wonder if that actually helps him get more calls, you know, if he's constantly oh, yeah. getting on the refs saying that was a foul, that was a foul, that was a foul. 
maybe the ref calls the next one, you know, and he gets, maybe it wasn't a foul, but he still gets the shots because just because it's a really hard play to officiate. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. There's a method to the madness for sure. And, you know, if you're a Hawks fan, you don't, you don't care that Trey Young may, may get annoying for the, for the other team drawing fouls. Uh, they're good for you and they help you win. So it is what it is. Um, okay, real quickly, we're not gonna spend much time on this because I don't want to, and I think people will know the deal. Um, defensively, it's it's bad. Uh, the numbers are bad. I get all that. I wanted to I wanted to present one piece of evidence that could be mildly encouraging about Trey's defense. You ready for this? I am. I'm impressed that you found one. I tried. Continue. Uh, okay, so when Trey was on the court this year, the Hawks had a dismal 116 defensive rating. That is terrible in every way. Uh, and they were about eight points better when he was off the court defensively, which still wasn't great, but much better. Um, the one thing I want to say, though, is notable. I'll say notable, maybe not hugely uh, influential, but notable, is that when Trey played with Damian Jones, who A, won't be here anymore, and B, we've talked about, and I feel bad about this, but is really bad on, on defense. Like, I would argue that I would argue that Damian might be more damaging defensively than Trey because of position. Uh, having a bad yes. defensive center is much worse than having a bad defensive point guard. So all that to say, when Trey played with Damian Jones, their defensive rating was about 121, which is unthinkably bad. And the sample size is not that small. It's 610 minutes those guys played together, which for reference is more minutes than Jeff Teague or Brennan Goodwin played at all for the Hawks this season. So... Uh, if you want to be charitable, the numbers when Trey played with anyone but Damian Jones were still bad, but they were less less bad. And uh, I think it's probably safe to assume that Trey will not be playing with anyone at center who is as bad as Damian Jones defensively next season or beyond. There you go. I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I, that's exactly what I was going to say. He is. A really bad defender. He's arguably the worst point of attack defender in the entire NBA. I I would not dispute that. I may never dispute that. He may remain that bad for his entire career. He got the better this year. I'll say that. I, he got better. He got better. I, I thought he got marginally better. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I still thought there were a lot of moments where he didn't really compete, where he, you know, it's funny, like there were times he'd move his feet and stay in front of the guy pretty well, but he just, he never uses his chest on defense. So like, even if he'd slide his feet and stay in front. The the ball handler's not meeting any resistance, so they can still just go wherever they want because Trey's, like, there, there's no contact. You know, he's maybe the least physical defender in the entire NBA, which is is maybe as big a problem as, as someone who doesn't have any lateral quickness or something like that. But the one thing I always kind of say in Trey's defense, and I don't mean to defend his overall defense, but it's exactly what you said. He was sharing the floor a lot with Damian Jones and Bruno Fernando, who... I'm fairly high on defensively long-term, but was not good last season. And center's a more important defensive position than point guard. So it's just really hard for your team to have a good defense when, A, Trey Young is your point of attack defender, or one of them at least, and the, the guys that they had were protecting the rim. You know, their, their rim protectors couldn't protect the rim, which is a big problem for your rim protection. So it like that that's not a winning formula on the defensive side of the ball. So there's no question that Trey's really bad on defense. Not yes. not disputing that at all. But I do think that that can be overstated and maybe overblown at times because of the talent he was playing with. And even guys like, you know, DeAndre Hunter, who I think is going to be a really good defender, 
He was still figuring things out last season. Kevin yep. Herter is a fine defender, but he's not amazing, and he's not your your wing stopper. Vince Carter is no longer that guy. So you just go up and down the roster. Their overall defensive personnel, even beyond center, just wasn't good until they traded for Dwayne Dedman. So it, and Cam Reddish kind of came into his own as well. So that that's kind of the one defense you can find for Trey as a defender. I do wonder how much that really matters. You know, like even if you get a good rim protector, how much can you really improve your defense if Trey A has his physical limitations, which he'll always have, and B isn't really putting in the effort, which at times he didn't really do last year. I thought that was the one part of his his season that he didn't drastically improve. You know, I mentioned every facet of his offense basically got better. I thought his effort level and activity level on defense it improved a little bit, but it, relative <laughs> to the rest of it, it kind of stagnated. So that yeah. that's the one place where he can get better. And like he's he's never going to be like he's always going to be a target, both on the perimeter and in the post. The the thing he can do is compete and be active and things like that. And there were moments where he did that this season, but there were also a lot of moments when he gave up. And so it's another one of those things where we're going to have to wait until he plays a meaningful game to really know you know, what, if that's real or not, how good can he actually be on defense? But I would not say that the signs were encouraging this past season. And that's, I, I mean, obviously at this point, that's kind of the biggest knock you can, you oh, can yeah. levy against Trey. And, and it is fair, I think to question, okay, like if, if your best player is that bad on defense, how, how good can you really be as a team? And can you win a championship? The answer I think is still, yes, it's just the margin of error is a lot smaller. You really need to hit on the 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 DeAndre Hunters, the Kevin Herders, the Cam Reddishes, those guys need to work out. You need to find these these athletic, versatile three and D guys. And we've talked. It's funny we've we've brought this up on basically every other season review <laughs> podcast we've right. done so far, where you have to build your roster a certain way if he's your point guard. You just have to. And the Hawks know that they've been doing that, but it just it makes it more difficult. And that's that's the big challenge here. You know you're going to have a good offense. Uh, you know you can have an acceptable defense. And I think really all they need to be is acceptable if they're going to have a top five offense at some point. It's just, it's harder to do that when you have the point guard personnel that you have. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to is that, you know, when he's your best player, your team has to be a certain way, like you've said, but it, it, and it really, the model essentially is build, if not the best offense in the league, a top three offense, realistically, if you're going to try to be a title contender and he's your best player, you better be incredibly good on offense. And the, the, the pieces are, you know, sort of the, the foundation is laid for that. And then you're hoping to be, you know, top 12 or so defensively. Um, and th- that model's been there before. It's worked in the past. Um, you know, the, the Nash Suns are a famous example of this, where they were leaps and bounds, the best offense in the league, and they were just okay on defense. Like, they were, they were passable-ish. It can be done. You know, one of those Cavs teams during the LeBron era was like openly bad defensively for most of the season, like in the 20s. And granted, they had better talent than that, but it, it can be done if you're that good on offense. It's just uh, the team building stuff is important. We all know that. I don't want to kind of go down that rabbit hole even further, but I think the context stuff is important. We, we've seen Trey for a quarter or a half be notably better and compete. And, I, you know, you're hoping if you're a Hawks fan, I, I assume that once the team is better and the games matter, Maybe his effort level ticks up some on on defense. Right. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to assume, or at least uh, hope will happen. Um, it's still going to be not great usually, or most of the time. But um, I think the combination of better personnel around him, especially at center, 
will be huge in at least covering up for him a little bit more and helping their results, as well as the development of the young guys, etc. So I think uh, if you're trying to play devil's advocate, and I'm going to try to do that a little bit here, he did, he, he got a little bit better this season. Um, and, you know, not ju- I feel like I'm picking on Damian Jones. It wasn't just Damian Jones, but the center situation outside of Alex Lynn this season on defense was really bad because even Bruno was a rookie and didn't know what he was doing. Um, that can really hurt you when a lot of those primary pick-and-roll actions are Trey Young and bad center X. That's tough. So hopefully they surround him with some better situations. And, you know, at the very least, you look at the depth chart for next year, you assume the center rotation will be Clint Capella, Dwayne Dedman, and John Collins in some form. All of those guys are a lot better than what they had this year defensively at that spot. So that helps in one spot. And then you, again, have to project some growth from the young guys too. And that puts a better situation around him. He's still your, he's still your weak point. Everyone knows it. I assume he knows it even somewhere deep down. But um, yeah, it's just one of those things you have to navigate. And you're hoping if you're the Hawks, this is the low point of, of, on, on the defensive side of the ball just because of the personnel around him. Yeah, and you can understand on a terrible team that, yep. I mean, he was openly <laughs> frustrated last year, especially in the first half of the year. You can understand why a guy wouldn't put forth maximum defensive effort, especially with the offensive workload he's carrying. So I get that. And I, I, if I had to guess, I would tend to believe that this would be the low point for his defense and that he will get better and that the the increased stakes, the the increased expectations, the increased talent on the roster, all of that will encourage him to try harder on defense. And Lloyd Pierce has, has openly said, like, we need him to be better. We need him to fight harder. We need him to compete. He's like the, the hypothetical he always uses. Is he says, you know, there's going to be five, six, seven possessions per game where they're going to go at Trey and he needs to, he needs to embrace that. He needs to accept that as a, as a challenge rather than what he often did last season. And that's my phrasing, not, not Lloyd's, uh, which is, you know, give up and kind of back down from it. So I think that is the hope for the Hawks just on the roster building standpoint to kind of, uh, you know, if it wasn't clear, it's, it's not just that you need these rangy athletic defenders. It's that you also need those guys to be good offensive players, right? Cause if your identity is your offense and you're counting on having an elite offense and your defense being passable, well, you can't sacrifice offense to make your defense passable. You need to augment your offense while also getting your defense to a passable level. So I think that's, yep. that's really the challenge. You know, any team can, can put, can acquire personnel that's really good on one side and really uh, bad. The, wa- on the, the Washington Wizards. <laughs> exactly. Look at the Wizards. Look at the Magic from this past season, the two sides of that coin. Yep. So it's the challenge is, okay, how who can we get that's going to help our defense while also not taking anything off the table on offense? Because um, you so can't, at a certain point, you cannot be the Wizards. I mean, right. it's, they're, they're an extreme example, but that was a pretty good offensive team this year that was not good at basketball because they were so bad defensively and granted they were historically bad defensively, but there is a certain level baseline on the defensive end of the floor and it's on either end of the floor, but for the Hawks, it has to be defense. That's their weak spot considering the roster construction. You can't be a certain level of bad. You have to still be competitive defensively. You can't, you can't be, you can't be number one on offense, number 30 on defense. That, 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 that plan doesn't work. It'll work some nights, but in terms of winning winning at a high level, you've got to be 20th defensively. Even if you're yeah. number one on offense, you, you can't be tw- you can't be 28th defensively. It's just not that. I mean, unless you're the best offense of all time, which I don't think is going to happen. You well, know, to to continue the the Trey Luca thread, you can be the 2020 Dallas Mavericks. 
you know, have a historically good offense and be mediocre on defense. And and I mean, still, and that's a fifty, and that's a fifty-one team. I mean, it's right, not exactly. like the Mavs were not the, the front runner for the title this year. Well, so I was going to say really they're not a that that was not a team that was expected to be, or maybe still, if the season happens, will be expected to compete for the title. But if you look at the raw numbers, the Mavs were sixth in the NBA in net rating this year, and that's good. But considering they were two and a half points better than everybody else in the league on offense, their defense was. I'm looking at now, the defense was seventeenth. And, like, that's a very Phoenix Suns-Steve Nash-era split of offense-defense. Like, clearly number one on offense, but, you know, below average on defense, and that's a good team. But are you winning the title with that team? Probably not. So it goes what I was saying before. Like, you probably got to get realistically to, like, 12th on defense. Yeah. And that's hard to do with Trey Young. It's not impossible, but you got to be good everywhere. Everywhere else. You got to be pre- at least maybe not good, but you, you got to be at least solid everywhere else, and that's 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 the question because you know those Suns teams, you had Nash who was their weak spot, and you sort of could say Amari Stoudemire was not great on defense, but everybody else was. Sean Marion yep. was a freak defensively, and that's how you build that kind of roster. Raja Bell. If you want to take the Hawks example to the nth degree, which I ne- I wouldn't necessarily do that, but you know Collins has drawn Amari comparisons in the past. If you just say that okay. John Collins is your second worst defender. That's hard. I mean, that that but that if you're a if you're a Hawks fan that wants to use this core to springboard in the future, your worst defender's got to be Trey. And if you're and honestly, your second worst defender probably has to be John Collins in terms of your best five lineup. That's yeah. tough. Yeah, we'll see. It's it's an uphill <laughs> battle, and, and that's kind of the. I mean, again, I I hate to just keep bringing it back to this, but that's kind of the the price you pay when you trade. Luca for Trey and and again the Hawks are probably not regretting that decision and, and that's that's in a lot of ways that's working out for them um and it's not I, even I that might... really it's really just like it's not even Luca because I don't I, I don't want I don't want you I don't want you, you to get hate mail about this because it's not really the point you're making even <laughs> don't worry, it's really it's it really anyway. about um just take that comparison out of it it's really about the decision or the reality to build your team around a 6-1 point guard that's a terrible right. defender. That's really what it because is. It's not, it's not even Luka versus can... Trey. It's right. like, if you look, because realistically, in NBA history, in modern NBA history, essentially one team has has won the championship with their point guard being their, clearly their best player, and it was the Bad Boy Pistons. If you want to say... Uh, Warriors? I, I know, but like Curry is also not six feet tall. Like he's, he's a, a little legit six three. Okay, you you could say Curry, but okay, we'll, we'll say Curry then. There are two examples. One of them is the Bad Boy Pistons. Isaiah Thomas is you know obviously a first ballot Hall of Fame ridiculous player, and he was surrounded by quite literally the league's best defensive personnel. Yeah, like they were they were still the number one defense in the league with Isaiah Thomas on the team, and Isaiah Thomas is obviously a much better defender than Trey's ever going to be. Not that he was great. But he was better than Trey's going to be, and that and they won, they really won on defense more than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you have the other side of the coin. If you want to include Curry, okay, all you have to do is have the best shooter in the history of the league, and a perfect generational role player in Draymond Green, and another and another top five shooter of all time in Clay Thompson, um, and an that's elite all perimeter got, defender in Andre Iguodala. Yeah, that, that's yeah. all you got to do is just like put together <laughs> the perfect the perfect roster around him. So it's not that it can't be done, and that's the thing. Like. Could the Suns have won the title with Steve Nash? Absolutely. They get one or two breaks, like Joe breaks his face one year. Like 
Yeah. They certainly could have won. The Spurs it, series with the bench incident. Yeah, I mean, and that's honestly, that's probably the comparison. I don't mean to make it over and over again, but in the modern construct of the league, that's probably what you're aiming for is that era Suns because that's the closest facsimile to what Trey is now. Granted, Trey is much more of a scorer than Steve Nash was. I get all that. But I'm saying that size point guard is your best player and is your worst defender by a lot. That's really the, yeah. the archetype. And again, it can work. The Suns were the best team in the league probably at some point during that run. So it's it's doable. It's just the the needle has to be threaded in a certain way. And we'll see how they right. can do it. And and to sort of clarify what I was saying about the the draft night trade is that the, the trade off between Luca and Trey is not that one is so much better on offense. It's that Luca is a it can be a passable cog in a decent defensive machine, whereas Trey is always going to be the weakest link and profoundly so on his team's defense. So it like that's really the big difference is like it's just harder to hide that guy, and and that's that's kind of the challenge that the Hawks are facing. It's not an impossible challenge to be no, sure. No, I mean and the but to, to... it's it's just a hard one. Yeah, and to bring it full circle to where we spent the first twenty plus minutes on Trey, it's it's worth the risk when you have when you've got this guy who has already proven in year two to be like an elite level offensive grader. You know, the biggest part of a rebuild, and it's, I've said it before, I know you have too, and everybody kind of has said it, but it's worth just mentioning again right now. The biggest part of a rebuild is finding your number one offensive option, and the Hawks have found it. Yeah. That's a big. That's yeah, a big that's, thing. That's. That's the I think should be the prevailing sentiment around Trey is that he is that good on offense and he is that guy for this team. Whatever his his shortcomings may be on the other end of the floor, you can work around those. And and he has proven that he's that he's deserving and that he's capable of being that number one offensive engine. And you know it's it, I would rather be in Atlanta's position than say Phoenix's position, where at least you know what your path is. It may be a hard path to to take. To, to actually execute but at least you know what the vision is you know how to achieve it and you you have to actually go out and do it whereas there are a lot of teams around the league who have spent longer than the hawks have oh, picking yeah. in the lottery and still haven't found that guy and I mean, still don't have that identity in that direction if you look at the if you look at the teams that are non-playoff teams this season in the nba you could fairly easily argue that the hawks are in the best position I'm not saying you have to say that, but the non yeah. the, the only other contenders maybe, maybe the Pels. I was gonna say that that that's the other one that everyone would naturally argue, and that's that's perfectly reasonable because they're really talented and Zion's a freak. But, what about the Detroit Pistons? You don't think they yeah. can get in that mix? Because I mean, okay, so non playoff teams, you have the Pelicans. They would be the. I think if you pull the league, they would be number one. Honestly, uh, the Hawks might be two. I mean, the only other contender, honestly, would be Portland. But because they have Dame, but yeah, maybe Portland, Memphis. But Portland's also or I like, guess they're in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. are. Yeah, so eight. either Memphis or, or New Orleans is in the playoffs. So whichever one you want to take out probably right. gets the nod. Yeah. But you know, Portland, we've you know as much as we've just talked up Dame earlier on this podcast, they've kind of built themselves in a corner to where like I don't think anybody realistically thinks that this iteration of the, of the Blazers is going to is going to win a championship. And that's not that's not on Dame. They just kind of locked themselves into this weird team that is going to be good again, probably, but not going to win the championship. Um, so it's like, and then you, everybody else, like, who would you rather be moving forward, the Hawks or the Magic, the Hawks or the Bulls, the Hawks or the Pistons, the Hawks or the Wizards, the Knicks, the Hornets? Like the Hawks are in such a better such a better spot than those teams because they have honestly, it's not just Trey, but that's a big part of it. 
Like Trey's the best asset on any of those teams. Not even close. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. And by the and, way, and like I, said, I, I I overlooked the the Warriors. I, I always forget that they're not in the playoffs. <laughs> they don't they don't count. They're, they're they different. almost don't even count as a non. They don't. This was just a lost season for them. It, like, they don't count. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, regardless, no, I mean, you, my point is it. clear. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, Trey, you it. Trey would be the best guy. asset on a lot of franchises in the league. Like, yeah, half or more of the franchises in the league, I would say, would kill to have yeah. Trey Young. So. Yeah, and and I yeah I think that's exactly right. Like you said, just just having that. That guy who gives you the direction, who gives you the the infrastructure, is is a hard. That's the hardest asset to get in the NBA. That that player yep. who you can build potentially a championship contender around is the hardest guy to get. And they uh, and by the way, just ask any any ask any 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 longtime Hawks fan that exact question, because you know even the best team in Hawks history didn't have that guy on it. And granted, they built that team perfectly, and that team was awesome. But as much as I am the world's biggest Al Horford, Paul Millsap stand, those guys didn't fit that description of that game-changing singular franchise player. Were they awesome? Yeah, they were. But they didn't transform your offense in a way that Trey Young can. And the last time, the Haw- and you could argue Joe Johnson didn't either. Like the last time the Hawks had a guy who had this kind of offensive gravity and ceiling is Dominic Wilkins. It's not like, that's not a new thing that I'm saying that's like really original, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and when you're looking at offensive initiators across the league, you know they either have to be all of them. I mean, all the best offensive players basically are great passers, and so you either have to to marry that with just an undeniable ability to get to the rim and score, or really dangerous outside shooting. Like you need you need two of those three elements, and so yeah, I think Trey pretty clearly has two of them. He's never going to be the huge get to the rim guy and finish but how many players in the league are all three of those i would argue maybe one james harden that that might be it um so yeah it's it's a the hawks are in a decent position and you know whether that gets them into the playoffs next season or not i truly don't know but they they have reason to believe that they could do that and i think if you told people that this time last year that they could be contending for a playoff spot in 2021 well maybe some people might have believed you i probably wouldn't have uh, th- that that's a pretty good position to be in just given how, you know, how they've, they've turned this thing around pretty quickly relative to what it usually takes a team uh, to, to rebuild. Like Trey's Ascension has really put them in a good spot. And again, it's, it's, it's like a- any other player, they, that trade would be right now. We'd be talking about that trade as just an absolute steal. How much of a genius Travis Schlenk is. And, you know, it's not a slight on Trey to just to, to say that, you know, to, to talk about how good Luca is, but that shouldn't also discredit or diminish how good Trey is too. It's just he he has worked out even better than I who I was pretty high on him going into the draft, and he's he's already better than I expected him to ever be. Oh yeah, I mean I uh, I will certainly agree with that. Like he is far better at this moment than I thought he would probably be at any point. So. I was wrong, and people are even people that were high on him, like you said, like didn't see this coming. So, Jostre Young, he's very good at basketball. We will talk very about him much basketball. more in the future. Uh, that's enough, I think. If that wasn't clear minutes. already, I do believe he's very good. I don't. I yeah, feel I like think, I keep bringing up Luka Doncic, but I don't mean to do that as a way to discredit Trey Young. I think he is an awesome player. I I can almost guarantee you'll get yelled at by someone um, as a result of this podcast, but I think it's also very clear if you're listening that we are uh, high on Trey Young. At this point yes. in time. All right, then. If I can well, say one uh, more thing, though. Yeah, go ahead. Just, just as a, a closing thought, I think it's 
this is years ahead of time, so maybe you know it, it's not going to be especially relevant next season necessarily. But I do think just as my kind of long-term question about Trey and and by extension the Hawks is like I think at some point they're going to reach a point where where Trey is going to have to sacrifice something, whether it's putting forth more defensive effort, whether it's playing without the ball, whether it's accommodating a second all-star, whatever it is, like he's going to have to make some sort of alteration in either the way he plays or his approach or whatever it is. Um, And that's not to say that he is incapable of doing that or even that it's unlikely that he does that. I just think he's had so much catered to him in the first couple of years that I think at some point we could see that reined back in favor of a more egalitarian team approach. And I, I wonder how, how he and the team will respond to that and how, like what that shift looks like. And again, it's not to say that he can't do it or that he's like, I'm not trying to make a judgment on his character or anything like that. It just, I'm curious to see what that sacrifice is and then, you know, how he handles it and and what kind of ripple effects that has on the team. I think that's going to be really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, because with few exceptions, you don't see teams operate the way the Hawks did this season where he just was forced to carry this workload that, you know, no one could carry responsibly for a long time. Like he was the only guy on the team for most of the season that could run an offense. And that's, you know, they're going to improve the roster to where they almost have to take some of the load off of him. He's still going to have a, a massive workload. and He'll still be a top 5, 10 guy in the league in usage. But if you compare that to what it was this year, I think it's going to, there'll be some tweaks to be sure. Just having more guys that can capably run the offense, maybe asking him to play off the ball a little bit more to use his shooting, his gravity. Like there's other things that are, that are going to happen at some point along the way, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Um, that, that progression will be interesting just when it's not going to just be, It'll still be a lot of this again, but it won't be just trying on pick and roll every single time forever. Right. Um, that'll still be the number one part of their offense, almost certainly. But um, yeah, a little bit less of that will probably be happening just out of necessity. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we've done enough. I think 91 minutes as, and counting on this podcast, Ben. Uh, we said this pl- wouldn't be a long one, and this might be our we longest lied. one. We lied, as always, to the people. Um, Anything you want to uh, plug? I know you've been, uh, you know, plugging away as we all are right now. I particularly enjoyed your uh, look ahead of free agency. I might uh, get you to come back on and talk more extensively about free agency in the next little bit uh, if you want to save your your bullets on that. But um, uh, anything else you want to uh, plug and get out there because you are still busy? Well, I'm afraid I may have exhausted a lot of my bullets on this on this episode <laughs> for free agency. Right. But I'm always happy to rehash that. Yeah, uh, si.com slash NBA slash Hawks is where you can read that. I also had something go up today on just kind of the that's Wednesday. I don't know when this is going to come out. Um, just kind of on where the NBA is right now in terms of its progression toward resuming the season, whether it's smart, whether it's feasible, what it might look like. It's a lot of just sort of um, sorting through other reports, but, but tried to add some context to that as well. Uh, working on a, you know, kind of a, a look back at some of Travis Schlenk's best decisions in his few years with the Hawks here. Uh, also doing some just general off off season recap or off season preview, regular season recap type of stuff. Uh, so you can stay tuned at that website for all of that. Uh, read and react NBA podcast is wherever you can find podcasts. That's more of a general look at the NBA, not Hawks specific. Uh, but if you're interested in that, you can find that there at bladner underscore on Twitter if you want to follow or reach out or tell me I'm an idiot. All of that 
uh, <laughs> is welcome. So, so feel free to do any of that. And that's about it. Well, thank you, sir, for joining me on this podcast and the entire uh, five program series reviewing the whole roster. We will find a new gimmick soon, I'm sure, if you're willing to come back on the podcast. But uh, genuine thanks to you for all the prep and all the help with this. Could have done it by myself, so thank you very much for doing this. Uh, as for everybody else, please subscribe. Please check out Ben. Um, please check out Ben's Twitter and SI and all that fun stuff, Read and React podcast. And uh, as for this show, we will see you probably next week, but if something changes, we'll come back before then, as we always do. So stay tuned for all of that.